message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. Well, welcome once again to Trinity Grace. We are so glad that you're here, especially if you're a guest with us this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, you'll want to turn it to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, the passage is also printed for you in your worship folder. And kids, I'd love for you to be listening for the following three things in the sermon this morning. First, be listening for what life can be like in middle school. Second, listen for some things that Paul could have been proud of. And third, listen for a definition of justification. First, be listening for what life can be like in middle school. Second, be listening for some things that Paul could have been proud of. And third, be listening for a definition of justification. Well, if you're a guest this morning, you should know that we've been looking at the book of Philippians over the past few months on Sunday mornings here. And the main theme that we see throughout the book is joy. Joy is the theme that Paul hammers on time and time again. Paul writes a letter to the Philippians that's all about having joy in the midst of difficult circumstances. And it's a timely letter for us to consider because over the past year, it's safe to say that all of us have encountered some pretty difficult circumstances. We've experienced disappointments. We've experienced loss and setbacks in different areas of our lives. And when you encounter circumstances like that, it's easy for joy to disappear, for it to evaporate. But Paul wants us to see that we don't have to forfeit joy in the midst of difficult and uncertain circumstances. Instead, he invites us to consider where true joy is found so that we might experience joy even in the midst of difficulty and setbacks and disappointments. As you read Paul's letter, you might even conclude that joy can flourish and grow in the midst of difficult circumstances. This is because for Paul, joy isn't tied to his circumstances at all. Joy doesn't ebb and flow with good and bad situations. For Paul, joy is found in his union with Jesus. Joy is rooted in his relationship with Christ. So if Paul has Jesus, joy is possible no matter his circumstances. And the passage that we're about to read is really the pinnacle of Paul's letter. It's the mountaintop. It's the key that unlocks the entire book, you might say. In the passage we're about to read, we see why Paul can have joy in things like suffering and humility and frustrating community and difficult obedience. In the 16th century, there were five phrases that summarized the Protestant reformers' basic beliefs on salvation. They're known as the five solas. And one of those phrases in the Latin is solus Christus which means in Christ alone. We believe that salvation is by faith in Christ alone, and there's no better passage to describe what we mean by that phrase, solus Christus, than the one we're about to read. So you follow along as I read from Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Well, this is God's word, and he gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. Do you remember what middle school was like? I'm sure that everyone had different and unique experiences when it came to your 6th, 7th, and 8th grade years. But there are also certain universal experiences that most kids have during that season of life. Whether you went to public school, whether you were homeschooled, or whether you went to Christian school, the experiences are fairly standard. It's the season of life when we start to uh, become fairly self-conscious. When it began to matter how our parents acted around our friends. When we began to give serious attention to the clothes that we wore and the music that we listened to and the kind of friends that we had. It's a season of life that most people look back on and they're glad it's over. It's a season of life that's full of anxiety and comparison and insecurity and judgment. A season of life where we're looking to build an identity in many ways for the first time to establish a sense of significance, working hard to measure up against the standards that are imposed on us from outside ourselves. You remember those days, right? Aren't you glad that we don't struggle with the same things once we graduate from middle school, right? Well, of course that's not true. Once I had a friend that said, no one ever really leaves middle school. We all struggle with the same middle school insecurities and struggles our entire life. We just have more resources and more opportunity to indulge our insecurity and desires to keep up now that we're older. Middle school is a microcosm of life. Who among us doesn't struggle with anxiety and comparison, insecurity and judgmental attitudes? Who isn't looking to build an identity and establish a sense of significance and measure up based on what we do or what we have or who we know? We never really leave a middle school mentality when it comes to how we navigate our lives. Our lives are a constant search for making sure that we feel like we measure up, ensuring that we're significant, wondering if we're on the right side working toward convincing others and even ourselves that we're enough. It's a great way to describe righteousness. Are you enough? We have an innate desire to feel like we're accepted, like we're okay, like we measure up, like we're enough. And the Bible has a word for this. As I just mentioned, the theological word we might use to describe what we're really after is righteousness. Righteousness. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? 
It's this desire that drives so much of our lives. It's the desire that drives us in our vocations to climb the ladder, to accumulate bigger houses and better cars, to strain toward more beautiful bodies with exercise and diet, to have perfectly behaved kids, to earn degrees from the right universities and colleges, to be on the right side politically speaking, to work hard to be better morally. It's all an innate desire to be enough, to justify our own existence, to find significance and worth through what we accomplish or earn or avoid. And it's this desire that Paul is addressing in our passage this morning. You see, false teachers are infiltrating the Philippian church. In verse 2, Paul calls these teachers dogs and evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. And these false teachers were likely those known as Judaizers. They were Jewish teachers who would come after the Gentiles, our non-Jews, accepted the full and free gospel message, and these Judaizers would attempt to convince these Gentiles that it was great they believed in Jesus for salvation, but they also needed to do a few other things to ensure that they were really okay, that they were really enough. You see, these Judaizers would encourage these new Gentile believers to adopt certain Jewish religious customs, primarily circumcision. Basically, the Judaizers argued that Jesus wasn't enough. Gentiles also needed to add other markers onto Jesus in order to be saved. And these false teachers, these Judaizers, were playing on the Philippians' natural human fear to question if they were really righteous, if they were really accepted by God, if they were okay, did they measure up, were they enough? And while we don't have Judaizers infiltrating our church to draw us away from the gospel of grace alone and Christ alone today, we do still hear persuasive voices in our lives that work to convince us that maybe, just maybe, Jesus isn't enough to bring us the significance and worth and approval that we so much desire. We have voices, or you might say teachers, in our lives that encourage us to build an identity on things alongside Jesus. And that's what makes these voices so alluring and dangerous in our context. It's that they normally don't ask us to forsake Jesus, After all, we likely wouldn't go for that, right? The Philippians wouldn't have gone for that. They wouldn't have forsaken Jesus. No, they invite us to hold on to Jesus, but also work to persuade us that we need more. It's exactly what the Judaizers in Paul's day would have been up to, coming to the Philippians, telling them that it's great they have Jesus, you just need a little bit more if they really want to be right before God, if they really want to be secure in their identity, if they really want to experience acceptance and love, they need to adopt certain identity markers in addition to Jesus. And this teaching made Paul angry because it had the potential to destroy people spiritually and cheapen the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross and with his resurrection. Paul came along and he taught the Philippians that all they needed was Jesus. 
All they needed was Christ. Paul taught that Jesus alone was enough to give the Philippians acceptance with God, to give them a solid identity, to give them a significance, and to provide the love that they craved. But you know how hard truly believing that can be, don't you? I mean, we don't normally feel completely secure in Jesus, do we? We don't always base our identity in Christ. We don't always feel the complete acceptance that Jesus offers. So we go searching for righteousness and things in addition to Jesus. And if I can put it this way, using the image we began with, we're often like middle schoolers when it comes to how we relate to the gospel of free grace. Constantly wondering if we're okay, if what we have is enough, if we really measure up. And these are questions we're constantly implicitly asking It reveals itself in the way that we relate with others on a horizontal level, person to person, and how we relate with our friends and neighbors. It manifests itself in how we look to different things in our lives to make us feel like we're enough, like we're in the right, like we're significant and worthwhile. It's really a search for what theologians call righteousness. The sense that you're okay, that you're straight, that you're not crooked in life, that you're enough. And we look to things on top of Jesus to provide this sense of righteousness. We look to things like our vocations to bring a sense of significance, believing that if we can earn enough or make a big enough impact or get to a certain level, then we'll finally feel worthwhile. We look to our families and our children to obtain a sense that we're okay. If our kids are well-behaved, if they perform in areas of life that are important to us, if they stay in line, then we feel like we're okay. We look to our material possessions to help us feel significant, and it's really all relative. I mean, we'd never say it out loud, but if we have a bigger house or a nicer car or a more up-to-date kitchen, then we feel a little bit more like we belong. You might say we feel righteous. Many of us look to our morality and church background and spiritual disciplines to help us feel like we're okay. And if we keep that morality up, then we feel like God likes us. But if we mess up, then we can't shake the sense that we've let God down. I wonder what in your life makes you feel worthwhile. It's going to be different for each person. What makes you feel like you're worth something, like you're enough? That's really the question Paul is getting at in this passage. False teachers have infiltrated the church and they're trying to persuade the Philippians that they need something on top of Jesus to feel worthwhile. And Paul comes along and he's not having any of it. He's not having any of that type of teaching. He reminds the Philippians that it's only Jesus that has the ability to make us worthy. Only Jesus can give us an identity. Only Jesus can give us the significance and love we crave Only Jesus can make us righteous enough in God's sight. And Paul takes aim at the Judaizers. I want you to see this. And the dangerous mentality that we're all prone to gravitate towards. And he does it by laying his own cards on the table in verses 4 through 6. He highlights his resume. And I love how Paul does this. He is so bold. He's not scared to compare resumes with these false teachers. He says that if anyone should have confidence in something besides Jesus, guess what? It's him. If anyone had reason to feel worthwhile apart from Jesus, it was Paul. 
Paul shows the Judaizers up. He lists seven things in these three three verses that highlight his pedigree and his spirituality. If anyone should have hope in their accomplishments, then Paul should. In these verses, Paul lists three qualities that he was born with and four qualities in his life that he achieved. And there were so many things Paul could have grounded his identity and significance and enoughness in. He could have grounded his significance in his ethnicity. He was of the people of Israel, he said, of the tribe of Benjamin. And you need to know that Benjamin was the one tribe that remained true to David's tribe of Judah when Israel split into two nations. It was a calling card. I'm pure. I stayed true. He could have grounded his significance in his education and his activism. He was a Pharisee. He was a persecutor of this new Christ sect that had come upon the scene. He could have grounded his enoughness and his moralism. He says that he was blameless under the law as he understood it. Just think about how these things would have given Paul a sense of significance. It's what he built his life on, this resume. How he could have taken pride in his accomplishments. How he might have felt superior because of his upbringing and moral conformity. These are often the exact kind of accomplishments and blessings that we root our identity in that make us feel worthwhile. But Paul looks at all of these credits to his account, and and get this, he looks at all of these credits, and what does he say in verse 7 about these gains? He says he counts them all as loss for the sake of Christ. He counts everything loss for the sake of knowing King Jesus as his Lord, as his authority, as the one person who has the right to define him and assure him that he is worthwhile, that he is enough. Like many of us, Paul could have grounded his identity in his ethnicity, his education, his activism, his moralism, his politics, his upbringing, his spiritual disciplines, and obedience to the law. He could have looked toward the resume that he was building to make him feel worthwhile. But what were formerly deposits to his account, Paul now considers liabilities. All of these things are liabilities in Paul's life. He counts all these good things as loss for the sake of knowing Jesus better. And he does this because he knows that these are things that he is prone to rely upon. And, And when he does that, it takes his reliance off of Jesus. Nothing in the world is more valuable than Jesus. It's as if Paul had found the hidden treasure in a field and he goes and sells all that he has so that he might come back and purchase that treasure. Jesus is the one thing that now defines Paul. Jesus is where Paul locates his significance, his worth, his enoughness, his righteousness. He even says that he's willing to consider his resume rubbish if it means he might gain Christ. And that word rubbish, skubala in the Greek, is a word that could be translated in different ways. You've likely heard this before. Rubbish is a fairly benign translation, to be honest. If we discuss the different ways to translate that word this morning, it would be inappropriate for a worship service in many ways. Paul is willing to look at everything that we'd admire in life and he considers it all worthless. He considers it all as valuable as something that you might flush down the toilet also that he might be found in Christ. 
In other words, the things that Paul formerly took pride in, the things that he found significance in no longer define him or give him his sense of worth. Now Jesus does. Paul is in Christ. He's got a new identity. And that phrase, in Christ, that Paul refers to in verse 9 is used over 160 times in the New Testament to describe who a Christian is in Christ. It's the most common phrase used to describe a Christ follower in the Bible. New Testament only uses the word Christian once, maybe twice. It uses in Christ 160 times. And the phrase points to the fact that your identity is no longer found in your family or in your race or in your politics or in your morality or in your sexuality or in your accomplishments or in your possessions. You're not in those things anymore. You're in Christ. Your identity is in Christ. Jesus is meant to cover all of who you are. If I can put it this way to help us see it most clearly, we might say that it's not sin that, Paul, that is Paul's main problem. It's not sin that's Paul's main problem. Go with me here for a minute. It's not the actions that bring shame and guilt that hold him back from Jesus. It's his righteousness, his good works, his personal deposits that have the most potential to keep him from trusting in Christ. Paul's giving these good things up so that he can have Jesus. He's repenting of his self-righteousness, of his good works, which is really sin, just the opposite side of the same coin, right? It's actually the good things in our lives that are most prone to keep us away from the gospel of grace. Our good works can keep us from the grace that Jesus gives just as much, if not more, than our immorality can. I ran across across an account this past week that comes from a man named Nathan Cole. And he was a largely illiterate farmer from Connecticut who lived in the 18th century. And he had attended church his entire life and considered himself religious And one day, he went and heard George Whitfield preach. And he wrote about how he was converted upon listening to Whitfield preach in his journal. And in his terrible writing, he was virtually illiterate, in grammar, he says this, My hearing him preach gave me a heart wound. By God's grace, my old foundation was broken up, and I saw my righteousness could not save me. Look, in our passage this morning, Paul wants to break up our old foundation by reminding us that we don't bring anything to God. We bring absolutely nothing. We don't offer any righteousness to Him. The message of the gospel is completely opposite. The gospel says that Jesus brings something to give to us. He gives his righteousness to us. We don't give our righteousness to him. And that changes everything. It really does. You can either rely on your own work and your own righteousness, or you can rely on the work and the righteousness of Jesus. And it's what Paul is getting at when he says that he's forsaken all of his good works so that he might gain Jesus and be found in him. Paul's in Christ. You're in Christ. Like we said earlier, that phrase, in Christ, it's used over 160 times in the New Testament. It's the primary way that Christians are described over and over and over again. In Christ, hidden in Him. 
In other words, when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. If you're in Christ, God looks at you as though you never sinned. But it's better than that. He looks at you as though you'd always obeyed as well. And it's all because of Jesus and what he gives us, the gift that he longs to extend, all because we're found in him through faith, not having a righteousness of our own that comes through our good works or obedience, but that comes as a gift from God and is received by faith. We don't give righteousness to God. He gives righteousness to us. And that's Paul's main point that we find in verse 9 when he says that he wants to be found in Christ not having, in verse 9, a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Here's the kicker, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And it's that tiny preposition that changes everything from God. From God. It's an alien righteousness. It doesn't come from within us, but from outside of us. Paul understood that his only hope in life and in death came in relying on someone else's resume, not his own. Paul shows us how to throw away our resumes so that we might take on Christ's resume. And this is what theologians call justification where we are declared right before God, enough before God, because Jesus took our sin and gave us his righteousness. It's the great exchange. In other words, Jesus takes our resumes and we get his. Why would you want to hang on to yours? It's what Paul is touching on in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, when he says, For our sake God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Look, Jesus spent a lifetime building a resume. It's what theologians call his active righteousness, his perfect life on our behalf. Jesus lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He always respected his parents. He never got annoyed with people. He never looked at another person with lust in his heart. He never gossiped, he never lied, he never cheated, he always worshiped God first, he always treated his neighbor with love and compassion and respect, he obeyed God perfectly. Talk about an amazing resume. And Paul is telling us that we can have that resume if we place our faith in Jesus. If we believe in him, hope in him, trust in him, Jesus takes our rubbish and we get his treasure. If we're in Christ, God looks on us as if we'd never sinned. What is true of Jesus is true of you. And you may feel ashamed. You may feel unloved. You may feel insignificant this morning, but you need to hear me say that is not true. It's not true. In Christ, you are completely forgiven. You are deeply loved. You are worthwhile. In Christ, you are enough. Only Jesus can give us the identity and security and love and joy that we long for. So go to Jesus this morning. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time, go to Jesus. You will not be disappointed. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the way that you have come to live the life that we should have lived and to die the death that we deserved for our sin, all so that you might extend to us 
the gift of righteousness, the gift of enoughness. We pray this morning that you would help us to believe in your goodness and grace in our lives more and more. Lord Jesus, help us to rest in the fact that we don't offer anything to you. All that we do is receive. And Lord, that is good news. We pray that you would encourage our hearts with it this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.